All right, let me agree with Micah that that was great singing. Um, we should have had you mic'd, man. Thank you for singing out and singing with gusto and enthusiasm. It's great to worship our Lord together. It's wonderful to have Jeremy Pitsley with us. We've known the Pitsleys for uh, a long time. Uh, his family's not able to be with us this morning, uh, and I'll let him share why. It's a special occasion for their family. Thank you for being willing to join us today. So would you come and share with us what God has laid upon your heart, please, Jeremy? All right. Can you hear me? Is it on? Ready? Looking good? Okay. Well, maybe sounding good anyway. It's good to be here. Uh, we do have uh, a bit of a history with uh, Calvary uh, Baptist Preble. Uh, we, while we were on deputation, uh, first raising our support, uh, we stayed close by and when we didn't have meetings elsewhere, we would typically attend here. That was when we were or when you were in the previous uh, building uh, on the, I don't know which side it is, but that way, okay. Um, so uh, we, were, we were around uh, during, during that, uh, that time. It's exciting to see how uh, the Lord is at work among you, how the church is flourishing, uh, lots of new faces in between visits, and are excited about uh, how in God's providence he's, he's uh, bringing this uh, church together and by his spirit growing uh, the church. My family uh, passes their uh, love and greetings. Uh, my sister-in-law, Christine Parker, I think you also uh, know Christine. She's uh, played piano here, I think, several times, uh, many times. And she is actually being commissioned uh, at a church in Syracuse as a Bible translator. Uh, so she's, she has a new home church um, that's sending her out and the service formalizing that is, uh, is today. Uh, it's kind of a, a big opportunity, and we wanted as many of the family members as possible to be able to enjoy that together with her. Uh, so they pass their love and, and greetings on. Uh, do pray for Christine Parker. Uh, her uh, field of service is Myanmar. And if you are uh, aware in world news that Myanmar is um, experiencing some extreme unrest uh, due to a military coup, and uh, she's actually here, uh, she would be here this year for a furlough, uh, but she is here early uh, because, of, uh, because of the unrest. She wouldn't be here um, except for COVID and now uh, the unrest that's going on there. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 86. If you grabbed a Bible on your way in, I believe it's page number 283 on those, uh, those Bibles. Psalm 86. It was, a, it was a difficult year, globally. 
for many of us. I know that this has uh, been uh, worldwide. The last 18 months have been uh, what the word that we used was unprecedented, right? Uh, so many have experienced uh, such hardship, whether in the uh, in the disease, uh, the coronavirus, uh, or in the economic repercussions uh, to the reaction uh, to the disease. And our church uh, in Nairobi was no exception to that. In fact, uh, before we got to the lockdowns that we experienced during the time of pandemic, uh, we as a family experienced something of a loss. Uh, We came over at the very same time as another missionary family. We went over to Kenya in 2013 uh, on the very same plane uh, with a a set of of dear friends, uh, partners in ministry. Uh, Week by week, we worked together. We taught together at the same school. And, And Due to a completion of his task, uh, it was time for that missionary uh, and his family to head home. Uh, still to this day, uh, my, some of the closest family friends um, that we have, and, uh, and there was no, uh, no major problems, no tension on the missionary team. It was just, my job is done. I, I feel like rather than taking uh, support, receiving support from churches, I should be part of a church, giving to uh, support missions. And he's a deacon of a church uh, in Michigan. Now we just spent a good uh, few weeks with them. But saying goodbye was very difficult. Uh, that was the 21st of January, 2020. So that was before anything, anything happened. Uh, when we said goodbye to them. Uh, The following month, again, before any of the lockdowns or any of the pandemics, our church had uh, three very active members uh, lose loved ones. Uh, One of those three we were planning to send as a church planter, a man in our church who's a qualified, gifted, godly man. We were preparing, even looking at uh, building sites for a church plant uh, for this man and his family to go and uh, plant a church on the other side of our city, Nairobi. And uh, very suddenly during the course of the month of, of February, his wife came down with an illness not related to the coronavirus and died. He's a father of four children. At the time, they were all under five years old. Uh, So a huge loss uh, for our church. Uh, The moment that the announcements about the coronavirus uh, came out, one of the pastors of our church, who's also an American, uh, was called back home by his American employer. Uh, So our church at this point is reeling. We've got a difficult loss of, of co-workers, friends, loved ones. And where do you run in times like that? You run to the scriptures. Uh, you run, as we've said already in the course of this service, you run to God's sovereignty and the promise of his presence. You run to the comfort of knowing that he has a plan. Even if you don't know what the plan is, he has a plan. 
It's precisely those kinds of things that we're going to find as we uh, take a look at Psalm 86. As we search the scriptures as a church, uh, we found comfort in the sufferings of Job and Naomi. Uh, we found we found an echo of our own perplexity and the perplexity of Habakkuk, who prays to the Lord, "How long, O Lord?" Uh, we found instruction about suffering in the book of First Peter, uh, but we found comfort like no other place. We found comfort in the book of Psalms, as the book of Psalms directed us to shape our petitions according to God's word, to shape our prayers before God according to what God has revealed to us. And we have found it so refreshing, not burdensome, but so refreshing to find how honest the psalmists are about uh, about their difficulties. So my aim this morning uh, through Psalm 86 is one to point you to that plan of God, that plan that God will accomplish, and also to share with you the encouragement that we as a church have found by allowing the Psalms to shape our petitions. I'll pray, and then I'll read uh, this passage, Psalm 86. Heavenly Father, it's a delight, Lord, uh, to have an opportunity to speak your word. We thank you that you teach us such frankness and vulnerability in your word. We thank you that you help us to ground our requests in who you are and what you are planning to do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pray. We pray along with the disciples of Jesus that you, Lord, would teach us to pray. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this psalm, I'll begin and I'll read all 17 verses. I'm reading from the, uh, the New King James Version this morning. Bow down your ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. 
I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. In this psalm, uh, we see a structure that's very common uh, among the psalms, and, and it kind of looks, maybe you could think of it like a mirror structure or bookends. I was uh, talking to uh, one of the, the Hebrew professors of the seminary that I went to about this psalms just a couple of weeks ago, and he said that the word is inclusio, so that's a, a nice uh, Latin term for you to, to take home. So inclusio just means bookends. Uh, the psalmist begins and ends with his petition, with his request, and in the center of the psalm, uh, the center being verses really 8 through 13. Verses 8 through 13 are kind of the apex. I, I think in American speeches, we tend to expect things to build toward a crescendo. You want things to, to end with a bang, so to speak. But in, in Hebrew thought, the idea was to crescendo toward the middle and then to resolve the crescendo. And to, and to actually mirror the beginning in the end. And so we'll actually take the, the beginning and the end together. We won't have time to go uh, each verse by each verse uh, this morning. We'll use the reflection and the mirroring of this, uh, of this passage and take those two sides together and then look toward the middle. Let me give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're, where we're headed. Uh, what we'll be talking about first is the psalmist's anguish. That is, he teaches us that our cry to the Lord, our cry to our Creator, arises from our weakness. And interwoven with this idea of the psalmist's anguish is the Lord's attributes. Verses 5 and 15 are mirror verses to each other. So the psalmist cries out to the Lord because of his weakness, and he rests his request on God's covenant character. He takes time to meditate on the attributes of God. So he starts with his anguish, and he moves to the attributes of God, weaving his anguish with God's attributes. Lord, if you are good, surely you can answer my cry. And at the apex of this psalm, we find that the psalmist conforms his, position, his petitions. He submits his petitions to God's plan which we've already been talking about this morning. 
Uh, so in three parts, uh, we'll look at our anguish, God's attributes, and God's aims, God's plan. Let's dive in. When we begin this psalm, it begins with a low note, uh, a minor key. Bow down your ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. The psalmist doesn't try to hide behind a a facade of self-sufficiency. He is not self-deceived about where he stands in reality. It's very good to have a discipline of prayer. That's one of the things that I, that I struggle with when moving because, because it's so helpful to have a time and a place to meet with the Lord, to open up the word, to hear from him, to speak to him. And then, and then you add in jet lag and you're in a new environment and you find that the discipline tends to uh, go right along with the environment. And that's a, that's a struggle for me, and that discipline is something that each one of us should push toward. Yet, discipline is not what this psalmist is thinking about. It's, in his mind, it's utter dependence. He is crying out to the Lord because he's desperate. And don't you know, or don't you feel like that's the way it is in our, in our lives as well? That when we cry out to the Lord as second nature, it's because we're in the midst of desperate circumstances. That's when, that's when our prayers just flow. It's when, when we know that we can do nothing to get ourselves out of this situation. When we know that if the Lord doesn't grant that the brakes work properly in that moment before we hit the back of a car. If the Lord doesn't grant, then we're stuck. In that moment when our kids are late getting back home and we hear an ominous knock at the door. At that point, there's nothing we can do. And our cry to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what's going on the other side of this door. I'm going to open this door and I'm hoping on you. At the hospital bed, we're doing everything we can, but we're desperate. God needs to be at work for the doctor's treatment to work, for the diagnosis to be accurate. For the prognosis to be good, God needs to be at work. This is where the psalmist finds himself. I am poor and needy. One of the delightful things about the psalms is their vagueness. And that doesn't sound like a good attribute. uh, But something that I think that can help us as we're seeking to allow the psalms to direct our petitions is just how difficult it is to figure out what the specific situation is that the psalmist is facing. We know that this psalmist is David because the superscription says uh, before verse 1, a prayer of David. There we have it. But what situation is David in? We don't know if, if he's you know, facing a lion as a shepherd in the field 
We don't know if he's the shepherd of Israel and thinking about Absalom. We don't know if it's in that in-between time with Saul where he's sitting on a rock and looking at all these um, outcasts who have become his, his army. We don't know the situation. But the psalmists were written deliberately so that we can fit our situation into them. And those words, poor and needy, honestly describe us. Whether we're talking about our physical frailty or we're noticing spiritual drift, we recognize that we are in this position, poor and needy. Last week, we uh, celebrated Independence Day, the celebrated the birthday of the Declaration of Independence, although I know that it was actually finished a couple days before. We celebrated our political independence, but we might call this psalm, among many of the psalms, a declaration of dependence. We have an absolute need of our God. We are poor and needy. Uh, This is how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He taught us to depend on him for our daily sustenance. This is like a child depends on his parents for daily sustenance. He taught us to pray daily for the forgiveness of sins, That we would not be led into temptation. He taught us that it is not the healthy who need a doctor. So we should seek him. We are poor and needy. This is the posture of our prayer, one of anguish. Our cry to our creator arises from our weakness. In a sense, this whole psalm is a prayerful expression of the proverb, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 14. Look at the mirror image of this original verse of being poor and needy. Look at verse 14. O God, insolent men, that's arrogant, arrogant men, the proud have risen against me, a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. God resists the proud. In our culture, and this maybe I can give an illusion that's um, a little bit dated, uh, to an older Disney movie that's relatively unobjectionable, but I'm I'm actually going to object to it. Uh, The Little Mermaid. Okay, The Little Mermaid. uh, You you remember the story. uh, There's a mermaid who sees a a handsome human prince and wants to join his world. So in defiance of her father, and by nefarious means, she gets a pair of legs and Uh, goes out uh, into the human world. Uh, The original telling of that fairy tale centuries ago ended as a tragedy, 
a horrible tragedy. The good guys lose, the bad guys win, all because the mermaid could not be satisfied with her station. That's something that we immediately begin to, to buck at. Be satisfied with our station. I mean, we're, we're, we're a land of opportunity, a place of self-made men. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Go beyond your expectations. And yet the original lesson was keep your head down, keep your nose to the grindstone, mind your business, keep to your station. We don't like this message that tells us that, that rising above a certain place is, is doomed to failure. We don't like that. We don't like that message. The ancients had a word for this rising above your station. Uh, the word was hubris. That's a Greek word that has gone directly into English. So that's an English word now, hubris. Hubris refers to arrogance, especially arrogance against God. And the psalmist says, look, I am poor and needy, and the others, they are set against you. They have risen against you. The proud have risen against me, and by rising against me, it's clear that they have not set you before them. And so he sets before the Lord his position. He claims, in a sense, his neediness as his right to be heard. Because he knows that in God's economy, hubris leads to humiliation. But humility leads to help. Good news is that he doesn't stay there. This psalm, in fact, helps us avoid two extremes. One would be the extreme of self-reliance, but the other would be the extreme of despair, because that's so often where we end up. When it doesn't become second nature for us to reach out to God when we're desperate, the only alternative there is despair. I have no one to look to. And this psalm teaches us just the opposite. It teaches us precisely who it is that we are to look to. Look at verse 5 and verse 15. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Uh, this, uh, these two verses are actually the fruit of a seed that was planted way back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, this is a time when Moses is seeking the Lord in the mountain. Uh, this is This is a time when he is pleading with the Lord to go with Israel, to not abandon Israel because of their sin. And and as a mark of the Lord's continued presence, Moses asks the Lord, show me your name. 
And the Lord agrees. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by declaring his name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and merciful. Yet, verse 7, Exodus 34, verse 7, yet he will not let the guilty go unpunished. This confession that that the Lord gave to Moses and Moses passed on to the people of Israel provided a foundation for them. A rock-solid fortress, the name of the Lord, to which they could retreat throughout the ages. This nation would retreat to the name of the Lord. Already in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're citing this passage, Exodus 34. They're citing Exodus 34 in 2 Samuel and in 2 Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum. They're all citing this passage, Exodus 34. It's in other Psalms. It's in Lamentations. It's in Daniel. It's in Nehemiah. It's in 2 Chronicles. From beginning to end of Israel's story, What God revealed when God revealed his name became a foundation and a fortress for his people. And that's precisely where the psalmist looks. In the midst of his anguish, he looks to the attributes of God. He and we should rest our cry, rely on God's covenant-keeping character. Let me just uh, point out uh, two aspects of this character. First, he's abundant in mercy to all who call upon him. Abundant in mercy. This word mercy is notoriously difficult to translate. It's one of those, one of those words that you're always going to lose something in, in translation. Uh, if you, even if you compare translations, you'll find that there's different, different words here uh, for, for mercy. Uh, typically, our New Testament, when it quotes passages that use this word, it uses a word for mercy. So mercy is a good, a good translation, but you often find the word love, loving kindness, loyal love, faithful love, because it's often tied to God's covenant-keeping character. This is the always and uh, always abounding, never giving up love of our Lord. Abundant in mercy. He looks upon his covenant people Israel and looks upon us who have been incorporated into Christ. He looks upon us not because of our merit, not because of our worth, but because of his delight in showing mercy. He's abundant in mercy. He is good and ready to forgive. Those two together remind us uh, that God's justice goes beyond a mere strict adherence to the law. Somebody might be law-abiding and still not be a good person, right? Or a a kid could be rule-keeping, but not a kind and ready-to-forgive 
child. God is good and ready to forgive. But that comes with attention, doesn't it? It comes with attention in, in our hearts. Not attention in God's nature, but attention that was present in our hearts as sinners because the very next verse in Exodus 34 says, yet he will not get, let the guilty go unpunished. So how can God be a God who's ready to forgive and a God who does not let the guilty go unpunished? You know the answer. The answer was waiting. David had to wait a thousand years to see it. It was waiting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ kept God's ways perfectly and died in the place of sinners. Romans 3 explains it very quickly or very uh, succinctly so that God could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's the good news. And the good news is an outflow of God's nature and God's attributes. The Lord Jesus lived the life that we could never have lived and died to pay the penalty that we should have paid. What a joy to know that we too can be included in this abundant mercy. Verse 15, this fullness of compassion, this long-suffering that the Lord has set upon his people. So in the midst of our anguish, we look to our God. We don't stay in despair. We turn from our situation to look at the God to whom we call. We rely on his covenant-keeping character. But the psalmist doesn't stop merely with calling on our Father who is in heaven. He says, hallowed be your name. He says, your kingdom come. In other words, he says that he is going to submit his requests to God's purposes, to God's plan, to God's aim. God's aim for this world is neither narrow nor shallow. Let me show you. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. His logic is pretty apparent, the way that he's thinking. If there is only one true and living God, and the nations then worship idols who are lies then one day there will come a time when there are no longer any competitors. No one will vie for the attention of the peoples of the world. All will direct their worship to the one true and living God. This is not to say that every individual will come to know the Lord. Uh, The Lord Jesus himself talked more about hell than any other author in the scriptures. So that is not what the scriptures teach. But it does talk about God's global purpose. For our age, in the book of Revelation, we find Revelation chapter 5, we see the end of the story. Every kindred and tongue and people and nation 
worshiping the Lamb because they were redeemed by His blood and they have become a kingdom of priests for our God. That is what Christ has accomplished. And the psalmist is looking forward to that aim of God. In the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our anguish, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our need, we must look beyond the situation to the horizon where God is accomplishing his purpose. We can see from this passage and many others throughout the scriptures, God is going to get the job done. And we can rest in that. We can take joy in that. Even in the midst of our struggles, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That this is all part of the plan that will result in one day, by God's grace, you among the nations, worshiping before the throne. God has a global purpose. He will subdue all of his competitors. But his purpose is not merely broad. It's also very deep. Look with me at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forevermore. It is God's intent from which he will not stray to create a a world in which there is uncontested, gracious authority exercised from his throne. It is God's intention as well to create within our hearts undistracted, grateful worship. God's purposes are both global and personal. And the psalmist, in the midst of his difficulty, cries out to God and says, Teach me your way, O Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. I have all of these desires regarding my situation. So many things that need to change. But what I want you to do, Lord, most of all, is to unite my distracted heart to fear your name to see you as the biggest thing on my horizon. We want you, Lord, to encompass my vision. We want you, Lord, to unite my heart, which is so distracted by all of these circumstances. Isn't it interesting in the midst of his struggle that he asks God to do a work in him, to complete his work in him, to create a worshipful heart within him. In the midst of his struggle, he submits his purposes to God's purposes. This is what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he, just, he didn't just teach us to pray that, right? We heard earlier this service um, pastor pointed out how Jesus on that, in that moment said, not my will, but yours be done. 
And Jesus Christ working within us by his spirit is conforming us to that very image so that we also will say, this is hard, Lord, help, but most of all, change me. Not my will, but your will be done. This psalm directs us to a rock-solid foundation in the midst of the sinking sands of this world. Let us call upon our Creator and rest our confidence in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this direction uh, to our prayers. Lord, thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark even when it comes to how we ought to pray. Help us to remember our true status before you, that we're poor and needy, but also remember that you are abundant in mercy and truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Jeremy. Isn't it easy to become distracted in our hearts during difficult